Welcome to Chief Digital Heroes, where we celebrate those who lead the charge on all things digital transformation at the world's most innovative banks and financial institutions. Here's your host, Matthew Van Niekerk, CEO and founder of Settlement. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Thanks again for listening to the Chief Digital Heroes podcast. We are here again at Cybos, uh, recording live with uh, Hari Jana Kiraman uh, from ANZ Bank. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, so today we're going to run through, as we always do, uh, talking about the, the journey of uh, digital transformation and the people leading the change that uh, banks are going through today. And so Hari Jana Kiraman is uh, Head of Industry and Innovation at Transaction Banking at ANZ. And again, thanks for, for chatting with me today. Sure, and thanks for having me. Great. Let's get started. So you've got a really rich background that's taken you from both traditional banking and also exploring emerging technologies. Can you tell us a bit more about the journey and the experiences you've had along the way to get to where you are today? Sure, absolutely. I started off in operations area, in trade finance operations in particular. And at that time, some, some may argue it still is, but at that time it was a very manual. So... We had lots of paper floating around. We used to have huge compactor rooms. For those of you who don't know what compactor rooms are, think of uh, big rooms which are used to just store paper. And uh, you, you get a transaction, you look at the transaction reference number, you go to a compactor room, you return those big wheels to identify where a particular piece of paper is, bring it back and do your processing and then file it all back. So that's how I started. Now. You can imagine as, as we were doing it, the one thing which comes to you is, okay, I'm surely there are better ways to do this. Right. So my nature, by nature, I'm curious. I'm always learning. And it started with, okay, what can we do to make this process better? Right. And the first small thing which I did uh, with my team at the time was, just on my own, was uh, just using uh, Excel and macros and we look up to start understanding who has what document in the in the team so it was it was, it was a team of 20 people and uh, we started logging those transactions they were they used to be scanned and as soon as they were scanned in and someone picked it up you log it in and you can start tracking okay this person has this document what is what is happening so that it just made it better so to give you a sense of that's where my journey started but over the years i have been learning and i've been fortunate to work with people who are willing to give me their time and help me learn new things. And I always learn things which are not just to my immediate impact in my area, but across multiple areas. And that has really helped me get where I am. Okay. And how long have you been with uh, ANZ? I've been with uh, ANZ for 15 years now. 15 years. Okay. Yeah. And uh, have you done a lot of horizontal moves, lateral moves within the, the bank or, or a bit of both? It's a bit of both. So I, I started off in ANZ in their operations area again. And then uh, managed a team which was looking at uh, implementing change management, process management across the operations area. And, and that involved quite a bit of uh, automation of processes. Yep. And then uh, over the time, then I moved into a product role with an ANZ. And, and product role requires you to think innovatively. There's an element in product where you have to manage the day-to-day -day running of a product. Ensure that it is meeting customer needs. It is profitable for the bank and you're managing your risk, and then you just spend a bit of time saying, well, what is next? Right. And that's when uh, I started uh, looking at uh, blockchain and uh, machine learning. So that was during my product days. And then I moved 
And while, while we were doing it, I had a conversation with my line manager at the time and said, the things are moving so fast in our industry and we really need to think about setting up a function which is not focusing on today, but it is focusing on tomorrow. Right. And that's how this particular function was born and, uh, and I was fortunate enough to be asked to lead that team. So our focus in this particular team was to look at what is changing and how do we set our business up and, and meet our customer needs uh, in Horizon 2, Horizon 3 and 4. For the Horizon 2 here, what I refer to is two years and beyond. So some of what we think about is even four or five years in terms of what the market is going to be and start preparing for that. Right. Yeah, interesting. I'll come, I might come back to the, the blockchain topic a little bit later in the in the podcast, but uh, I'm curious to hear what is a, a typical day look for you at uh, ANZ? Good question. And uh, one thing is, it is never the same. In an innovation role, it is truly you are working on multiple things at any given time. So it's very different. But the way I, I arrange my time is I aim to spend a lot of time with customers as much as I can. So I may not be able to meet customers every day, but that is something which is part of the routine, at least once in a week or two or three customers over a, uh, over a fortnight. And these conversations are not about what's happening today. This conversation is about how they see the future. So what do they think their needs will be in the future? And also take an opportunity to talk about what we are seeing. So that is, that's one part of what we do. And in order to do that, you need to prepare. So part of other part of the day is, and this is not just at work, I read a lot. I read and listen to a lot of stuff. So this is continuous learning, which you need to do. And then the other part of the role is to ensure that we are fostering innovation across our organization. So as, as the person who's heading the innovation team, it is not my job to innovate all the time. My job is predominantly to help people innovate, help people who come up with ideas to incubate their ideas and when those ideas are successful, make it into a commercial proposition. So that's part of the job. So, so part of what, what I do is engage with the teams. There are teams who come and provide ideas. There are people who come to me saying, that, hey, we have this particular customer who's having this particular issue. What can we do about it? Right. So it's part of the job also goes into that. Then the, the other part of the job is also to help others learn. So my role is head of industry and innovation. So I do a lot of industry stuff. So we engage a lot of universities in Australia. I sit on the board of uh, an advisory board, AI advisory, artificial intelligence advisory board at the RMIT in Melbourne. And, we, and that is one example. We engage other universities as well. So engagement with the universities is twofold. So one, we learn from them because they are best and brightest minds and they are working on some really cutting edge ideas and, and technology and they are looking for commercial ideas or how to yeah. look at things from a real world perspective. Right. So how to take that. How to take that. Into practice. And so that's one example of another thing what happens in my day in, in engaging with the industry. And the last part of engaging with the industry is also sometimes you must be familiar in your role as well. It's just not good enough to think about a change. You need to advocate for that change. And part of my role is also advocate for digitization, especially in the area of trade and international trade in Australia. So I engage uh, multiple levels of uh, government, with various chambers of commerce, and that's part of the role as well. That's again an example of how my part of the role is to engage the industry. And that, that, that requires uh, preparation, that requires you need to be able to make a convincing argument on why something must be digitized and uh, why that is going to benefit, especially if you are going to speak to someone from the government, Department of Trade, 
and you need to get it into their priority list to say that you need to have just as an example a simplified trade system in australia which is a single window for all trades going in and out of australia how is that going to benefit the australian yeah. import and export so that's part of the role as well so that's it's it's a, it's a wide variety all i can say is it's never the same right yeah <laughs> there is no typical day <laughs> yeah but i guess uh it's interesting. The um, I think there was uh, a couple of months back uh, some announcements or some kind of global collaborations around digitalization of bills of lading. Are you involved in any of the discussions around that, or how do you see that, and how's that going to benefit the industry? Absolutely. So you're, you're referring to MLTER, a uh, bit of a mouthful, but it's essentially what it be, it is a uh, bills of lading. For those of you who are listening to the podcast who are not familiar with the term, documents issued by shipping companies who undertake to ship someone's goods from one place to another place and bill of lading has historically and still is a document which not only is the receipt that someone has someone is agreeing to carry your goods or commodity from one place to another but it also in kind of a quasi title to your goods and it plays a very important role in international trade and that document is still predominantly paper based so you talk about when you talk about digitization of trade you have to digitize everything in the trade and if one of your most important document is not digital then it it all breaks down right so mltr is is aimed to provide legislative guidelines on how to treat a bill of lading which has been issued electronically right so yes so that is context your question whether i am involved and i have been doing work absolutely yes so it's it's a Historically, I've been very closely working with the International Chamber of Commerce and the digitization of trade, yeah. and I still do in uh, International Chamber of Commerce's Banking Committee in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are working in our home markets in Australia. For example, we are working very closely with uh, various government departments to put the adoption of MLTER, uh, MLTER as a uh, as something which they need to think about uh, in terms of legislation in Australia. And part of that also includes the natural question is why, right? Yes. And something which we continue to work on. That, that's an ongoing process. Right. Okay. Interesting. And uh, it's providing guidelines for countries that are involved in international trade, which is pretty much every country. And is Australia one of the leading countries in, in pushing ahead the agenda for digitalization of trade? I wouldn't call Australia a leading country, unfortunately. It is one of the largest trading countries in yeah. the world. It has a lot of trade partners who are digital. Australia itself is not very digital, so that is that's a piece of work which we have been working with the Australian, the overall industry and the government to really push that on top of the agenda for us to meet it. Having said that, some of the largest Australian companies who do export of commodities, which is what Australia is really known for, they are predominantly digital. Right. So you you have a you have a two stage system where you have the large, sophisticated customers who are digital. Uh, to give you an example, we did the first ever truly digital end to end digital transaction globally, right? Involving an Australian customer, an Australian exporter, and a Singapore based importer. Right. I may get me years wrong there, but approximately around 2016. Okay. To give you a sense, and that was the first transaction ever where there was absolutely no paper, including the bill of lading I talked about, uh-huh. right? And that was bill of lading was digitized using one of our partners in the industry. So it just happened before. So and that 
type of journey continues. Right. Now, why you have two speed here is big sophisticated companies can invest on their own and can be comfortable with standards or they can come to terms with certain private type of standards. Yep. But if you want to have mass adoption of this and you need to really bring it down to not just your big, large, sophisticated exporters and importers to small corporate, small, medium type of enterprises, you need to have uniform regulation so that it's much more easy for everyone to adopt, not only for companies who can afford to have a partner with a specific uh, institution. So that's what we are working on. So how do we get that? Right. Yeah. Very exciting. Yes. So the seed was planted in 2016 and the journey continues today. Still continues. Yeah. Yeah, let's uh, let's come back a little bit to ANZ. Like uh, ANZ, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, over 150 years old. It's been uh, it's a cornerstone of banking in in Australia, and um, so obviously it's gone. It started paper based, uh, of course, and digital transformation is is uh, been ongoing. How would you say where is ANZ in the digital transformation journey? Are they at the starting point, the midpoint, getting close to the end? Yeah, so we were uh, started in 1835. 1835, well. With the charter, and uh, and we were started predominantly mainly to as a trade bank, and we still are in our hearts a trade bank. So our aim is to help our customers move trade and capital across the region we operate in. So that is that DNA of the bank has not changed. Now, in terms of our own digital journey, see, we are we are quite advanced and sophisticated in terms of what we do. The way we look at looking at digital and how do we transform is it always starts with what is the customer need, what is the business problem we are solving for, and then work from that basis. And I think that is really important because otherwise you may invest a lot of time and money into something which it may not necessarily meet customer needs. The other reason why that is important is all customers and not all customers are the same. I gave you the example of how we started with some of our sophisticated customers in 2016 and we are still continuing the journey. That is true in many other examples as well. Right. So if you take integration through APIs as an example, as, as ANZ, we have over the years built a customer-facing channel. Uh, so that is the move from paper-based instructions to a digital instruction coming via channel. We then, over a period of time, integrate, uh, developed our host-to-host -host capability. Then we had multiple channels for multiple products. We brought it all together so that as a customer, you you get into one ANZ channel or platform, you can access all the services of the bank. And then you started your API journey where we have the built API capabilities for our customers to interact. Why I'm saying that journey is, but we have customers who are still on all parts of that journey. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because customers have their own agenda, their own speed and their own sophistication. So while we help our customers to digitize, make it easier for them, we also are conscious that we have to work with them at a pace which is reasonable for both of us. There's no point in just pushing our customers into it. This is the one way or the other way. Right. So it's, it's really important we do that. I think going back to your other part of your question is, and we continue to push the envelope in terms of what is next. I told you at the start, my job is to really look at two years and beyond. And part of that, we are already looking at what is the, going to be the future of financial market infrastructure. Right. And we believe the future of financial market infrastructure is going to be DLT-based, it's going to be tokenization, it's going to be atomic settlements, payment versus payments, delivery versus payments, and we are already working towards that. Right. 
does it mean that every one of our customers are going to migrate to the technology in two years time? No. Right. But that's a journey. So we will have the capability. We have customers because, like I said, we always start with a customer problem. We, are, we have customers who are telling that type of a capability will suit us, so we will build. Right. And as we build, as, as we generally see, it's like a funnel. You, uh, you have our inverted funnel where you have the most sophisticated organizations start adopting, and then it starts filtering down to a level. So it is, but we need to be constantly pushing our digital capability, our agenda, yep. and, but also keeping in mind we are never going to be in a perfect world where everyone is in the same speed. I think that's interesting, a good insight. You said pushing our agenda. What I took from earlier is it's indeed the, the, your agenda is driven by your customers. Absolutely. What are their needs? And so it's a, it's kind of their agenda, and but you know, implementing it and bringing them along at the pace that they're comfortable with. That's, yeah. uh, that's actually fantastic. Yeah, I think I think that's important. So our, our role, especially in my role as a chief innovation officer, or head of innovation here is to really think about when a customer comes to you with a problem, how do we solve for it? Yep. And it's not always that you solve a problem by thinking completely something which is out of the box, right? Yep. A lot of times you may find that you can solve the problem with existing tool sets. Yep. And there is no shame in using existing tool sets to solve a problem, <laughs> right? Because you need to think about the customer. It's not about us. It's not about I can... This is an example I give to my team all the time. I can drive my son to school in a... Lamborghini, yep. I can also drive my son to school in a Camry. Yep. I already have a Camry parked in my garage, so I will use that. Yep. Does the job perfectly well, right? Yep. So I think that's that's how we look at it. So, But there will be problems where we think, okay, this existing technology is not going to go all the way. Yep. right? It's going to solve the problem, but we can do it much better. So let's first work with the customer to solve the immediate problem, but also help them. Hey, by the way, so you really liked our the automation of payments. We are working on the next technology where we can not just automate payment, we can uh, link the payment to a value or a smart contract so it can make your life even better. Do you want to have a look at it? So that is how you, you take it. But if you ignore the first problem and go to the customer with, I have this great idea, customer is going to say, no, 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 that's too much for me, sure. right? Just help me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really interesting. So in your role, you're looking at two to five years out uh, about how the industry is moving, what technologies are available, what solutions or what problems can be solved to create better solutions for the clients. Are there any particular technologies uh, that you're exploring today that you're really excited about and, and that you're either working with today or working with tomorrow? There's AI, there's blockchain, there's quantum on the, on the horizon. But is there a particular technology that uh, excites you? Usually there is more than one. <laughs> it's, 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 curiosity it's, it's never one. Yep. But I'll talk about a few things which uh, the team is working on. So one is, I mentioned that we started our journey using blockchain in 2017, 2018, and uh, that is ongoing. Yep. And we have learned a lot in that journey. Yep. Right? Now we are at a stage where we no longer talk about the technology. That's a given. Yep. But I'm still excited with what the technology can bring. And how we are using the technology today is we are tokenizing assets. We have our own stablecoin, which we issued on a public permissionless blockchain. Which is it asset-backed or algorithmic? Uh, it is. It, no, it is one-is-to-one one backed yep. uh, by fiat currency. So we are not in the business of doing those types of stablecoin because our, our purpose in our stablecoin is predominantly for institutional customers. And like I said, it is solving a real problem for institutional customers. Right. So what problem are we solving? So I'll talk about the most recent case we did where we were able to write a smart contract 
to tokenize Australian carbon credit unit, right. which is an offsetting carbon credit. Yeah. Right. And we issued an $8 DC, which is the way we call our Aussie dollar stable coin, where the customer was able to procure that carbon credit unit and then redeem, uh, redeem it or retire it and retire the entire transaction. Right. Now, why will that be interesting for a customer? So today, in best of times for you to do that, if you have everything in place, it takes two days, T plus two. Yep. Right? Now, you don't have everything in place all the time. So what that then gives you is sometimes if you don't have a, an account to obtain Australian carbon credit units, opening an account can take months. Right. Yeah, yeah of course. Right. Yeah. So this is about how do we enable that very quick way of, okay, here is a token, a carbon credit unit token. Not only the token, you can actually see where it is coming from, the provenance, all part of it. And by tokenizing, what we mean, it's actually having the value of the asset and the ownership of the asset on a chain. Right. And then you, you use our programmable money and write a smart contract where the delivery of the token yep. from the seller to the buyer yep. happens at the same time as the payment happens. Right. And that is the power of this new technology which excites us. Now, the opposite of it, what happens today while people, well, we do it today, which actually doesn't happen like that in existing technology. In existing technology, the delivery happens in another platform payment happens in another platform. So we are bringing it together. So that, that is the power of atomic settlement. Got it. So we, we keep progressing on those case studies. So that is one tokenization and we are exploring other areas of tokenization. How do we really use this technology to transform how financial services are provided and consumed by our customers? Yeah. And you would have seen in Cybos quite a few of our peer banks are also talking about it. So no, no one does. Something that's quite different in what you've explained, Hadi, uh, versus other, or vis-a-vis other banks that I've spoken to is uh, the thing you said at the beginning of your description, it's public permissions. Still, a lot of banks are quite firm on uh, private permissions. And um, it's really interesting in, uh, to see that uh, ANZ is out, uh, let's say, at the forefront in terms of working with public technologies. Yeah, so we have been very closely working with our regulators in this. So every step of the way, including, hey, we have this idea, what do you think? get their feedback, do something and show it to them, get their feedback. So it's a journey. So our regulators have been comfortable with us doing this on a public permissionless right. blockchain. But it is for our wholesale customers, sophisticated institutional customers. We are not issuing a stable coin and putting it on an exchange for, you never know. But that is not going to happen unless we have very clear regulations and boundaries in which we can operate. Now, there is another reason, that is the regulatory side. Yep. There's another advantage of going in a public permissionless blockchain, right? So if you look at financial market infrastructure today, very few of them are global. Yeah. So you look at real-time payments networks, right? Yeah. Real-time payment networks are pretty much almost always domestic. Right. You have various central banks talking about how do you connect those real-time payments networks together, yeah. right? Same with the clearing systems. Yeah. Many clearing systems are not global. Now, here you have a technology which is born global, right? Yeah. So you are already one step. So it, it's not like if you take any DLT, by an Ethereum network, it is it is decentralized. It is born, born global, Yeah. right? So why wouldn't you use that? Yeah. 
But I, can I just jump in for a second? I think also with your experience in trade finance, and there was is kind of a proliferation of trade finance on-chain permissioned uh, consortia that were set up. And, and I think in the exuberance to explore the technology and the benefits, um, what happened is various consortia is set up. And then, you know, they were not able to talk to each other. So if you have a, a client or a shipper that's, you know, working a, across geographies and that's uh, in a global sense, what, you know, the islands of solutions yeah. needed to be interconnected. And, and that's something I still don't think has happened. It's not happened. Like we also work on permission blockchain. So I don't want to say permission yeah. blockchain is bad, right? It is my view that everything has its purpose and this use. You need to find the right purpose for something. Now, a permission blockchain, we think, and we have some projects going on internally where I think we think it's going to be quite useful to transform the way the bank itself moves banks' own money, right. how we manage our liquidity. You don't need to have that. You don't need to broadcast that to the world. Right. So that's a really good use case, right, where you can have it. And it, it, you get all the benefits of blockchain and tokenization, which I've been talking about, but you don't need a global network for that. And you want it to be in an environment that you are absolutely comfortable, it is yours. You, you know who's who's using it, etc. Yeah. Now, then there are use cases where a permission network makes it very complex. So trade is one of them. Yeah. Where a permission network can make doing trade quite complex because a typical trade transaction, you don't have two counterparties, you have many, many counterparties. Yeah. And trying to coordinate multiple counterparties to come onto one platform. Yeah. And then when you have multiple of those platforms, it becomes more complex. Right. Having said that, you may also argue, hey, but hold on, Hari, there's no one public permissionless blockchain, yep. right? There are so many different public permissionless blockchains. So I don't think that is ever going to change, right? You, may, you Probably there's going to be a consolidation, but I don't think we, we are going to be in a world where there is only one totally global network. So one of the piece of work we have been doing, and we have been doing this with Swift, and we talked about it earlier in, the, uh, in Cybos, is we work with Swift and uh, Swift's partner and our partner Chainlink on what is called as cross-chain interoperability protocol. So this is a way in which we believe it is, we can show it is possible to connect two blockchains, yeah. make them interoperable so that we are not forcing everyone saying that oh, this is the only way you transact. Recognizing that people are going to be different. So we are currently working on a live transaction, but we have done something on a testnet. So what we have been able to do on a testnet is we tokenized an Australian reef credit. So Australian reef credit is something which you generate by protecting the Great Barrier Reef, right? The Australian reef credit is tokenized and it is purchased by our customer using our $8 stablecoin. The buyer of that token sits in New Zealand and they are going to purchase it using a New Zealand dollar stablecoin. Right. Two different blockchains. And we were able to complete the entire transaction using the cross-chain interoperability protocol. And we were able to do it in an instant. So that is to give you a sense of how it works. Yep. And the entire transaction happened instantly, pretty much. Right. So that is that's the beauty of it. Now, here is another use of what you may ask if I if I can, it's not directly a question, but I think the listeners may have an interest in this. Why bother? Why do you need to have that for a reef? credit is not an offsetting credit, right? So by offsetting credit, you, you buy a carbon offset. Yeah. You can say that I have offset some of the emissions yeah. I'm doing. But a reef credit is not an offsetting credit. Yeah. So, so these are customers who are thinking about, okay, how can I not just protect the environment by purchasing these credits so that people are encouraged to do more, yeah. but also how to give it back. So the, these customers are big retailers who are thinking about, okay, now I purchased this reef credit. 
One of the beauties of this technology, which you know very well, Matt, is fractionalization. See, in theory, you can fractionalize it to any any number. So you, you buy, let's say, a, a reef credit worth $100. Yep. You fractional, you can fractionalize that into 10,000 pieces. Yep. And when your customer buy, come to your shop and buy something, you can say, by the way, you're buying this shirt or you're buying a shoe. And along with the shoe, I'm going to give you a unit or one ten thousands of a unit of a reef credit right. as, as a reward. Yeah. So people are thinking in those terms. So you can't do it in the physical world. Like you can't yeah, you can't take a want to give a, a piece of the reef to somebody no to certainly not. Exactly. So so that's a good example of what the use case is, but also talked about the why permission and yep. uh, why permission list. And, and Hari, I just, uh, I've only got through about half the questions I wanted to ask you, but this has been a very fantastic uh, chat with you. I just mindful of time. I know everybody at Tybos is back to back in meetings and I think we've got a little bit over time. So I think it, I would love to have you on the show again in the future. But in the meantime, if uh, anyone that's uh, listening to the podcast would like to follow what's happening at A&Z, follow what you're up to, Hari, uh, where can they keep in touch or where can they uh, follow along to see the, the journey that you're on? Yeah, sure. So ANZ's uh, internet page has anzinstitutional.com. So we put a lot of what we are doing there. People can always reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'm always learning. So I'm, I'm always, yes, I never say no to anyone who's asking me, can we have a chat? Because I'm sure they have something to tell me, which I don't need. Right. <laughs> That's like curiosity keeps coming back. But uh, Hari, I would like to thank you a lot for your time today. And uh, yeah, that's it. Enjoy right. the rest of the show at Cybos. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chief Digital Heroes, brought to you by Settlement, the world's leading blockchain transformation platform. To learn more about Settlement or to access the latest episodes, visit settlement.com.